This season of Sincerely Human is sponsored by Riley Sway Foundation. Through community-focused programs, Riley Sway inspires teens to lead with empathy and kindness to build a better, kinder, more just world. From connecting student leaders to awarding grants for projects that amplify kindness, Riley Sway Foundation equips the next generation of leaders with the tools and resources they need to envision change and achieve it. Please stay tuned for Kindness Calling, our postscript segment featuring the remarkable teens from Riley Sway Foundation. I was working at a documentary production company in New York City called The Documentary Group. And around that time, we were approached by a funder about researching a project on how to end global poverty. And we were really intrigued by that question. Just thought, well, what are the experts saying? What we saw was there's a mountain of evidence that points to educating girls being the single most effective thing we can do to eliminate poverty. And so when we saw this data, we thought, my gosh, why don't we know this? Why isn't this common knowledge? And why isn't the world doing more about it? And we decided that if our job as journalists and filmmakers was to kind of discover this truth that's known to a few and bring it to the broader public, that this was the story of a lifetime. You're listening to Sincerely Human, a podcast that tells stories of kindness in action from the lens of today's most inspiring humans. This is Camille. And this is Maverick. Welcome to the show. When girls are educated, they become women who are healthier, they earn more, and are able to educate their sons and daughters equally. For these reasons, educating girls is incredibly effective in addressing intergenerational poverty, which just means that poverty is transmitted from one generation to another, from parent to child, and so on. Globally, there are 130 million girls with no access to school. This is the result of a variety of factors. There aren't enough schools or trained teachers. Parents need their girls to stay home and help take care of younger siblings. There's simply not enough money for books or uniforms. But there's another barrier. And that is that in so many places, girls are not valued for their minds and for their futures. They're valued as wives-to-be, mothers-in-waiting. And so investing in their education is not seen as a high priority. That's Christina Lowry, CEO of Girl Rising. And if a family has to make the very difficult choice because of resources of choosing to educate their son or their daughter, most times they will choose to educate their son not because they don't love their daughter, but because it is seen as a more valuable investment that will bring back more return to the family. That a girl, if she's going to be married by 15 or 16 or 17, it's seen as, well, she doesn't need to keep going to school. 
Girl Rising is a nonprofit that works to ensure that girls around the world are educated and empowered. The organization grew from a film by the same name. The film featured nine girls around the world who overcame the odds to achieve their dreams. Their stories inspired audiences to take action in advocating for girls' education. Christina grew up in Columbus, Ohio, as the daughter of a doctor and a nurse. I knew that grown-ups were doctors and nurses and teachers and this big bucket of like business people, although I didn't really know what that meant. I loved to read when I was a kid. I always had my nose in a book. I was a kid who was interested in all kinds of things and was always plagued by this idea of, oh my gosh, well, what do I want to do and what do I want to be? When Christina was in high school, she became interested in international development. She convinced her parents to let her travel to Honduras to volunteer at an orphanage. I was living with kind of a friend of a friend of a friend of my family's in Tegucigalpa, the capital of Honduras, that summer. And I think that was what the first time I was really struck by this idea that for no doing of my own was I born into the family I was born into. And for nothing that these kids had ever done, were they born into the situations that they were born into. And that because of where we were born and who we were born to, that defined the opportunities that were available to us. The many that were available to me and what seemed like the very few that were available to these kids. I felt a real responsibility in that, that surely if I was born into a situation in which I had opportunity to go to school and be supported and make choices that part of my responsibility was to make the world a better place. In college, Christina majored in comparative literature, but her desire to make a difference in the world inspired her to also get a graduate degree in community planning. She stumbled across documentary filmmaking when a friend hired her to do some research for a film. Which really was like, Somebody turned on a light bulb for me and I thought, oh my goodness, this, this process of making a film encompasses everything that I love, that I find challenging, being able to research a topic, knowing nothing about it, having a chance to talk to experts, trying to figure out how you tell a story out of that, finding real people who are living the experience Then having to go to, okay, well, then how am I going to film this? How am I going to edit it? What's the music going to be? How am I going to put it in the world? I loved every process and I found it so thrillingly challenging. Christina went on to work in documentary filmmaking for several years. After she had her second child, she decided to leave her job as a producer at the Documentary Group, a company in New York City. But she was pulled back into the team to work on a project on how to end global poverty. You know, that really tiny topic, not complex at all. Surely something you can tackle in a 90-minute film. Um, And we were really intrigued by that question. Just thought, well, what are the experts saying now? What are researchers and practitioners saying? And so we went and we talked to people across the development spectrum. And what we heard really surprised us in that research what everybody said was somewhere on their list of top five things that needed to happen to improve outcomes in their sector and to address poverty. 
somewhere in that list of top five things was, well, really, you have to get girls in school and keep them there. When they dug deeper into the data, they were blown away. A mountain of evidence pointed to girls' education as the most effective measure to eliminate poverty. They found that educated women are more likely to invest in their families and to send their children to school. That meant educating a girl had a ripple effect that lasted across generations. Despite this, research also showed that the U.S. invested in girls' education with less than two cents per dollar spent on international development. And so when we saw this data, we thought, my gosh, why, why don't we know this? Why isn't this common knowledge? And why isn't the world doing more about it? We thought, well, if there's this evidence that shows that this is such an effective intervention, why isn't there more investment in it? And we decided that if our job as journalists and filmmakers was to kind of discover this truth that's known to a few, right? There are people that have worked decades in this, and that's why there's a mountain of evidence, and bring it to the broader public that this was the story of a lifetime. They created Girl Rising, a movie that follows the stories of nine different teens in nine different countries from around the world. For each story, they partnered with a female writer who picked a girl and wrote her story. In Ethiopia, one in five girls gets married before the age of 15. That's the national average, but you'll see ages as early as six, seven. That's Maaz Amingiste, the author and journalist who wrote the story of Azmera, one of the girls featured in the film. How did this girl, who's this shy, buck against that system to stand up and say no to forced early marriage. Asmara, she's the first one in her family to ever do that. Stories like this are what inspired the organization to become a nonprofit. Girl Rising is now not only producing and distributing films and other types of content, but they also develop tools and curricula based on those stories. And they work with local partners around the world to implement them. That is Girl Rising. We tell stories to change the way the world values girls and their education. That's Judith Regist, Vice President of Programs at Girl Rising. I think the question about where I'm from, it's always a loaded one. I was born in Haiti. I grew up in the U.S. And I have spent my adult life and career working and traveling around the world have lived and work in over 10 different countries and have traveled in, well, over three times of that. So I consider myself, broadly speaking, a citizen of the world. So I live in the world and my exposure is giving me perspective and experience and I consider this to be my greatest asset. Judith's passion to defend girls' rights goes a long way back. I talk often that like I was a feminist before I understood the word feminism because, you know, when you grow up as a girl, there are certain direction you are set to go and you're like, no, that's not what I want to do. That's not where I want to go. And adults are not always good at explaining to you why that is. And I'm one of those highly, I suppose, intellectual in that sense. I always want to understand the why. I had to sort of do the washing and the boys didn't have to do it. And I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why is that? That desire to question her world led Judith to study philosophy. But she ended up embarking in a decade-long career in organizations that worked to advance women's rights. Through this experience, she had a realization. If we don't actually 
address the fundamental issues when women are girls, right? If we're not investing in education, we can't achieve gender equality. We can't achieve economic equality. We can't achieve political participation. In 2020, Judith joined Girl Rising. We approach our work in the recognition girls have power, in the recognition girls have voices, in the recognition girls have agency. And part of our role is to remove the barriers, the cultural barriers, the structural barriers, the institutional barriers, all the barriers that exist that actually disable girls in using that power and tools, right? If we support young people, girls in particular, to actually drive the kind of change that is possible in the world, we all win in the process. Today, Girl Rising operates in 11 different countries. They collaborate with over 100 local partners and more than 10,000 educators. And there's one value that's always present at Girl Rising, both in their storytelling and in their engagement with organizations around the world. Is the kindness in which we interact and work with each other. And it's sort of easy to sort of say, what does that mean in the grand scheme of it? You know, it's kind of how we do meetings. It's kind of how we engage in collaboration and how we engage both in collaboration with each other across teams and share information, but how do we show up in sort of partnership with the organization we work in the various different country contexts? How that work with the girls and adolescent boys we work with, how does that play itself out in kindness? And this whole idea of kindness is for us a recognition of power, a recognition of expertise, and recognition of who you are. The very act of actually getting to know people through their stories is an act of kindness and engagement. It's you showing up with some degree of vulnerability and sort of who you are and sharing information of who you are, but also in showing up to actually do what we call deep listening at a cultural level and understanding like, you know, listening to you and seeing you in your power, not seeing you in someone whose story needs to be told, seeing you as just who you are, like your presence in the world that you belong in the world. Engaging with the story is an act of kindness in and of itself. I think it's a beautiful mission, but more than anything, I think humanity needs us to do this work. And so we can do our part as others are doing their parts and together, and we each do our small parts. I think we build and shape a better world. If you want to learn more or get involved with Girl Rising, head on over to their website, girlrising.org. There, you can also sign up for their newsletter, access their educational tools, or purchase the film. You can also watch the film on Amazon Prime. Stay tuned for our postscript segment, Kindness Calling. In this edition of Kindness Calling, we're touching on an issue that you might have read about in the news five or six years ago. In 2014, the Flint water crisis began in the city of Flint, Michigan, when the city turned to the Flint River as a water source. This was supposed to save the city $5 million. Government agencies like the United States Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA, tested the water and found high levels of lead, which can affect the heart, kidneys, and nerves. However, it's reported that the city of more than 98,000 people majority of whom are African-American, didn't know about the dangers of the water because the EPA chose to keep it a secret until the information leaked to residents in January 2015. I lived just about like an hour and a half away from Flint. And so 
this it just really put into perspective, you know, how important this issue was. That's Michael Ruprecht, a junior studying neuroscience at the University of Michigan. He is also one of the co-chairs of the Flint Justice Partnership, an independent student organization at the university, which aims to serve the Flint community and educate students about the Flint water crisis. There was a lot of news coverage of the Flint water crisis when it did start in 2014 and then when the news kind of broke in 2015. But we actually noticed that, you know, people started to kind of forget about it. There was a lot less dialogue about it. A lot of people just kind of forgot about it, didn't know that it was still going on. And so I think that was kind of a big problem for us is that we had to do that initial kind of educational work to actually tell people, you know, hey, you know, this is still going on. People still have to use water filters. They can't just use a normal tap like you can. And so I think that was kind of a big challenge, um, especially for people who were, you know, out of state from different countries, from all over the U.S., and even like Midwestern students from Michigan. Michael shares that a lot of people they've connected with are actually surprised to know that the residents still don't have access to clean and affordable water. Six years since the crisis began. In spite of their frustration and the lack of action from authorities, students like Michael and a few others decided they could no longer sit back and turn a blind eye to what was happening in their community. We were pretty surprised to learn that we were really the only group at the university that was doing this kind of work, which for being like the largest university in the state, um, and the Flint water crisis having had been such a large issue is pretty shocking. That's Quinn Nolan, Michael's co-chair at the Flint Justice Partnership. I think the first events we did were like, we did a letter writing event for um, kids at the Hurley Medical Center. The Hurley Medical Center is a teaching hospital serving residents of Eastern Michigan, including Flint. And then eventually, it wasn't until kind of the, like after the first six months when we really started getting to more like service-oriented trips to Flint, because um, we finally connected with a group called Crossing Water. Um, and they had been in Flint since like the start of the crisis, so they were very familiar with it. And um, that's when we started kind of doing what we call like deployments, which are basically when we go to residents' homes, deliver water, help to install water filters, see if they need any like food, um, bus tickets, anything like that. So that's when we kind of really started doing that kind of boots-on-the-ground service work in Flint. From a group of five students, the organization grew to 30-plus students, some of whom come from outside the University of Michigan campus. I think overall, I was always just surprised by, you know, the resilience and just the community aspect of Flint. One person in particular that my group visited was a woman with grandchildren who were actually diagnosed with attention deficit disorder and you know there's been a huge spike in kids who have been diagnosed with all sorts of different disorders because of the lead poisoning there's not a lot of resources sometimes in the schools for special education and so you know it's kind of going day by day but it's amazing to see how all these residents you know they share supplies with each other you know they go to their neighbors they share whatever they can And it's just amazing to see all the love and support and the kindness out there. In tackling such a huge and complex problem, student-run organizations need all the help they can get. You know, I think a lot of our work is really, you know, focused on community work. And a lot of what we're able to do is because of different communities. 
and Riley's Way has just been another community that has, you know, just inspired us. Michael is talking about the Riley's Way Foundation, which gave the Flint Justice Partnership a $3,000 grant to help advance their work at the organization. I think overall it just makes me super optimistic about the future and all the young leaders that are out there to make a positive change. For Michael, Quinn, and the rest of the students at the Flint Justice Partnership, their work is far from done. Here's a message from Michael to anyone who's out there looking to act on the social issue they care about. I think one of the most important things that our advisors told us, something that we really learned and kind of held close to our heart is to really go out there and talk to the community, ask them what do they need, not asking ourselves, you know, what do we want to do? Because we want to come in to the community with the best of intentions. And I think you can only do that if you truly know what the community needs. That's it for Kindness Calling. If you want to learn more about the Flint Justice Partnership, you can check it out through the link in our show notes. Thanks again to our presenting sponsor, Riley's Way Foundation. On January 25th, Riley's Way Foundation opened its national initiative, the Call for Kindness competition for its third year. Teens from all around the country can submit their projects and ideas that are designed to make a difference and inspire kindness in their communities. Winners will be given $3,000 each to help implement their projects with their school or nonprofit partners. Deadline to submit entries is on April 7th. To learn more about the Call for Kindness and other life-changing programs at Riley's Way Foundation, please head on over to rileysway.org or callforkindness.org. Links are in our show notes. We'll be back next week with another story of kindness in action. But until then, please don't forget to share this episode with people in your community. We would really love it if you helped us spread the word.